1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. I think a lot these days about the relationship in uh, life between uh, the power and depth and value of love and love in personal relationships on the one hand and the sad and crabby fact that uh, when you stand up and look at your world around you, you see that an awful lot is vanity and misery and futility and uh, what uh, some religious traditions call emptiness. This is as clear as the uh, uh, nose on your face if you begin to be disillusioned by the running around and endless fretting of uh, human um, um, misfire and uh, overactivity and frenetic anxiety. It's very beautifully stated in a recent uh, headline uh, story in The Onion, the college magazine of ironic humor, which is really very clever. And in this story, uh, it is announced that God is thinking about retiring. And in uh, uh, the interview that is given by God the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, he uh, remarks that he um, uh, one of the reasons he's going to retire is to spend more time with his family because he, uh, for example, got so caught up in his own uh, work concerns that he missed uh, the crucifixion of his son. He uh, just didn't happen to make it to this great event, which he really ought to have been present at. And he looks back and he says, you know, I was, um, I'm sure I was doing something that seemed very awfully important at the time, although I've forgotten now what it is. Now, um, the uh, humor in that uh, is that uh, it sort of uh, mimics the current uh, understanding that a lot of people seem to have, that all the running around that we do uh, tends to uh, uh, underplay the really uh, final, decisive importance of personal relationships and love uh, in relationship to work and career and the fretting and the fuming and the smoke of earthly activities, which seems to vanish uh, as you uh, look back on your life in favor of uh, what few moments of real emotional commitment and contact and intimacy you had. Now, this <clears throat> theme of love 
of, at the fore of uh, human values and precious experience is um, a little corrected by the futility insight. You have on the one hand uh, the insight that vanity, vanity, all is vanity, as Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, among many, countless others, uh, observed. And on the other hand, we know that a life uh, without love uh, is to be uh, let loose on a sea of uh, complete despair and nihilism. And so you uh, constantly find yourself uh, moving back and forth between uh, the value and the primacy of human love and the insight, uh, the empirical observable insight that uh, an awful lot of what we think is important ends up being hot air and uh, basically a whole lot of nothing. Now, in um, Wilder's uh, treatment of a Greek myth that was uh, presented in 1955 at Edinburgh in the Church of Scotland Assembly Hall, of all things, which uh, barely now exists. I think it's now the uh, location for the devolved uh, Parliament of Scotland, the Church of Scotland itself having lost so much ground, sadly, uh, uh, and interestingly, in the contemporary UK, in uh, that synod hall in '55, was presented a treatment that Wilder had been working on for some years of the Greek myth of Alcestis, the queen of Thessaly, together with her husband Admetus, the king of Thessaly, and various uh, um, intercourse that uh, was given to them with the god Apollo. And uh, Wilder brought this uh, very uh, ancient story into uh, modern perspective without for a second uh, conceding to contemporaneity or modern sets or even uh, contemporary ways of speaking. But he did uh, give uh, the whole agnosticism of uh, contemporary life and the tremendous questions and doubts of the existence and presence and intervention of God coupled with a kind of existential um, admission of nullity and <clears throat> vacuousness about life, he tried to see these things as present within the great myth, and I think he succeeded. And I'd like to talk today about the interplay of love on the one hand, human dear love on the one hand, and uh, the very tragic and despair-engendering insight that all is vanity. Uh, these two uh, inescapable themes of our life, as I see it, are woven together very well in the Alcestis and end up in Act One, which I'm talking about uh, for a little bit today, in a kind of affirmation of marriage, uh, and a long-term whole commitment of a man to a woman, a woman to a man that is uh, thrilling and uh, affirming to anyone who's ever uh, been married and sought to be happy within the limits of uh, human fallenness and selfishness. Now, I laugh whenever I read the cast of characters of these great, rather high-culture plays that were produced in England in various forms, often at festivals in the 50s and 60s, because if you have an eye for pop culture, you will inevitably find that about a third of the actors and actresses in these high-flying, uh, beautifully crafted dramas 
uh, also are known in the horror movie genre that came out of England in the late 50s and early to mid-60s called Hammer Horror. And uh, I laugh when I look at the cast of characters in uh, the uh, production uh, on August 22nd uh, of uh, 1955 in Edinburgh, and I note that um, I uh, see Robert Hardy, a very you know, wonderful actor who is uh, still seen on uh, BBC dramas and Masterpiece Theatre, but who I think of as the uh, evil Count Sorm in Demons of the Mind by Hammer, or you see Rupert Davies playing Hercules, and I know him uh, any intelligent person uh, would know Rupert Davies as the actor who played the bishop in uh, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. So um, you can have a sense of humor about the intersection of high art and low art in these uh, great plays and their productions. But in any event, the Alcestis, Act One, is uh, presenting the uh, artist giving a view uh, of the relationship between re the reality of, of life and its uh, constantly reverberating, uh, getting through to you, uh, meaningless and often uh, even a feeling of unreality to it all, together with the power and the uh, affirmation of uh, a human love that is adult and uh, real and mutual. In Act One of the Alcestiad, we have a discussion between the great God, the God of mystery, the God beyond, and yet the God who will speak to humankind, Apollo, and he and death, he and the figure of death have a uh, uh, contretemps in front of the uh, palace of the king of Thessaly on the wedding day of Alcestis and Admetus, her husband-to-be. And the uh, two figures are um, taken over by Apollo's uh, decisive and determined and final statement that he is going to act in the lives of men and women this day, the day of the wedding of Alcestis, the woman, and Admetus, the successful suitor. And we come upon the figure of Alcestis, a very a touching, alive, beautiful, substantial, in-touch, uh, searching, honest woman as she uh, is to be the bride on the great day. And she is distraught and awakened at night and has not been able to sleep and has been up on the terrace of the palace beside herself with... Um, double-mindedness about this wedding. What had happened is that uh, the uh, god had, the god, as is often referred to in Greek uh, tragedy, had determined that the only uh, uh, successful suitor of Alcestis would be uh, one who had uh, subdued a, a team of animals and driven it around the city walls. Impossible to subdue animals. And uh, Admetus had done on the second try this amazing feat and was awarded with the hand of Alcestis. And now she finds that she is filled with dread and uh, ambivalence about the great event, 
that is to come. And she says to her uh, handmaidens, Aglaya, she says, Since a young girl, I have had only one wish, to be his, that is, Apollo's, priestess at Delphi. I wish to live in the real, not these lives we see about us, fever and pride and possessionship, but in the real. I do not wish to remain as ignorant, she then says, as the day I was born. Now, uh, Alcestis is a woman who is entirely unsatisfied with the appearance of things as they are, and she is overwhelmed by the um, legitimate religious urge to find an avenue of truth in the middle of a life which she has seen through. She is a wise woman, and she feels overcome with an urge to become a priestess of Apollo at Delphi. Now, Aglaia, her handmaiden, repeats to her mistress Alcestis, but the god has not called you. The sign you are asking for, princess, is before you, the clearest of signs. Aglaia tries to argue that because the god Apollo has not specifically called Alcestis into the chamber of worship, he must have called her, so to speak, to a different form of experience. What she appears to be saying is that God has called you to marry this man and do your duty as the queen of Thessaly, the mother of children, God willing, who will succeed to the throne, the uh, mistress of the great palace, the advisor and counselor and lover to the king, who has freely uh, come as you to he, hopefully, and uh, that is really what God has called you. And she struggles with this. Any number of us have struggled with this, haven't you? You are uh, feel called to a more exalted station. You feel that uh, your whole passion has uh, brought you to a higher vocation, a greater uh, watchfulness of human affairs, something less uh, humdrum than quote, marriage and children, uh, married with family. Uh, you want to accomplish greater good, uh, higher things, and uh, Alcestis, with her high-minded resolve and her tremendous dissatisfaction with the world as it is, is being uh, told to stand and wait, to do uh, what is before her rather than to project something, um, a calling that is in fact not being made. It's an old message, and uh, now Alcestis has to come to terms, however, with it. She has to freely embrace kind of doing what is to hand rather than um, enlarging her missionary vision and going off to Africa, as it were, or entering the ministry. And uh, she is, however, gifted not with fanaticism. And so many people I know who have these large senses of vocation can uh, succumb to a kind of overwhelming belief that they are right and that their calling is irresistible and that there is a higher responsibility to which they are constantly answering, which may in fact be deluded and often runs out of gas after a few years of real experience and real life and real um, exposure to the fallen um, narcissism and cruddy uh, cruelty of everyday people. Um, and so she has to uh, come from a, a desire to a sort of an enlarged and almost blown up uh, 
grandiose uh, picture of her life, which is very sincere and is also tied into a true picture of things as they are. She has to reconcile that with what is on her plate. Now, uh, at this moment in the play enters Tiresias. Now, you may remember the character of Tiresias. He comes uh, possibly uh, with a, a slightly different formal expression into Woody Allen's play, The Mighty Aphrodite, his photo play, his movie. And uh, I believe it's Jack Warden uh, who uh, comes along as uh, the Tiresias, the blind seer, who's constantly telling awful things to uh, the uh, protagonists of Mighty Aphrodite. And uh, that is uh, the role of Tiresias. He uh, is a figure of tremendous mystery and interest in uh, uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, poem, The Wasteland. And he is kind of a clumsy bull in a china shop, authentic prophet who hears messages from Apollo. And he bursts onto the scene in the middle of uh, Alcestis's reflections on her, her ambivalence about her marriage. And Tiresias says he has a message. And he's a little bit so old, he keeps getting it wrong, he uh, is a figure of fun, he's so old that he forgets who he's talking to, he almost forgets who he is, he forgets what his message is. But like a true um, medium of the uh, beyond, a true prophet, he has something to say of overwhelming truth and interest. And he announces that Zeus has commanded that Apollo, my master, that Apollo come down from Olympus and that he live on earth for one year, solstice to solstice, live as a man among men. I have given my message. Boy, lead me to the road. Tiresias is pressed and he uh, elaborates just a little bit on his message to say that outside the city gate there are four herdsmen, one of whom is in fact Apollo. But I'm not going to tell you who it is and you're not going to find out. And we discover that these herdsmen are uh, shepherds of filthy habits, at least one of them. One of them has a gift of being able to navigate through hill and dale under cover of darkness. Another is uh, a singer of songs, is the poet, and uh, uh, the others have various qualities. One, they're drunks, they're really pretty slimy characters who've come down from the hills, but one of them is Apollo. Alcestis presses Tiresias, and she says, don't you have anything else? Don't you have a message for me? I have so conscientiously uh, sent word to the temple of Apollo at Delphi to ask for a word. Have you nothing for me? Tiresias says, I have a message for some girl, but I have forgotten it, or else I've delivered it already. That's it. I've delivered it. But what use is Delphi if men and women cannot learn to listen? Now, I think we're supposed to say that the message to Alcestis has been delivered by the nature of circumstance, and God's word to Alcestis is to marry Admetus, who's a fine fellow, 
with a whole heart. But she struggles with this. And again, everyone I know struggles with the givens. I'm the worst offender. You, you're given a set of circumstances. You're given a particular role. You're given a certain kind of family. You're given this or that people in your life who are uh, ineluctably and irreparably and uh, imperviously part of the scene. And you cannot change the circumstances, let alone the characters. And are you going to accept it? Resign yourself to it. Understand that this is the series of cards that have been dealt. You could say from Apollo. Uh, you could say from nature. You can say from fate or providence. But these are the cards that have been dealt. And Admetus and Alcestis are wrestling with this. Most of all, Alcestis. She uh, says to uh, Apollo now, she uh, is left alone with these four uh, impossible, rather funny, kind of scratching and itching, drunk and snoring, uh, not to name other things, uh, shepherds who come down. And she speaks to them in hopes that one of them is Apollo. Some say, she says, in the presence of the four, hoping to reach the one who is the divine man, some say that you do not exist. Some say that the gods are far away. They are asleep or drunk or feasting on Olympus. I have offered you my life. You know that I have wished to live only for you, to learn, to be taught by you the meaning of our life. The stage direction says, no answer. And then Alcestis, in words that are uh, bring together these two themes, the theme on the one hand of meaninglessness and uh, belovedness and active love. She says, then we must find our way by ourselves, and life is a meaningless grasping at this and that. It is a passionate nonsense. Now the herdsman, one of the four, three of them are sort of disqualified by sleep, alcohol, or other um, obsessions, uh, and uh, one of them speaks up and um, uh, reminds her uh, that what she is um, looking for uh, has uh, been placed uh, right uh, before uh, him. Uh, she is supposed to hear these words, Ah, yes, says the herdsman, who may or may not be Apollo. Admetus sought your hand. There's a man... Hercules, son of Zeus and Alcmene, and you can see it at once. I've seen a dozen better men than Admetus, but, says the herdsman, slowly I begin to say that King Admetus has something that all those other heroes haven't got. And wouldn't that, speaking as he is of Admetus and the marriage to come, wouldn't that be, maybe, the way those unhappy lovers, he here is speaking of the gods who are posited as actually loving men and women, wouldn't that be, maybe, the way those unhappy lovers, the gods, would try to throw a bridge across the gulf I was talking about? Alcestis is going to be given in the place of her very observant 
point of meaninglessness and vacuity and fruitless effort of the human fretting. She's going to be given by this herdsman's message the word that a bridge has been thrown over to human beings. And the bridge is love, as she is going to uh, act it out with this good, uh, but not necessarily stellar, man, Admetus. Wilder had made this point uh, at the end of his great and much earlier novel, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, that the real bridge of meaning uh, in life that is otherwise unpredictable, utterly chancy, and often cut off at the very source and beginning of hope and creativity, as in this terrible accident that happens in this Peruvian bridge when these good mixture of men and women are killed instantaneously in a freak accident. He is going to make this point again in the Alcestian Act One that the bridge over uh, the gulf of whatever meaning actually subsists in the universe and the meaningless of human, um, the meaninglessness of uh, human experience. That bridge is love, and. Uh, what uh, concludes this very beautiful word uh, in Alcestiad Act One is that Admetus, the king, now comes onto the stage, and he is aware with uh, absolute mutual admiration and respect for his betrothed that she has mixed feelings. Word has got to him that she is really uh, a woman who puts her calling or her, her belief in her mission in life above all else. And he frees her. He says to her, Alcestis, I have just given orders that your drivers and your maids be prepared for the journey. Before you leave, before you leave, he is giving her, what do we say, uh, to love somebody, set them free. Uh, that used, to, that used to just drive me crazy, that song by Sting. I found it such a cliché. And, of course, for someone like me who's very possessive and very much not wanting to set free uh, those sources of love, which for me would be like water and drink, um, it seemed like a, a giving up of something that was intolerable. And here is exactly what Admetus was saying. Before you leave, Alcestis, I wish to say one thing. I do not say this in order to win your pity, nor to dissuade you from what you have planned to do. I say this because you and I are not children, and we should not conceal one another what is in our hearts. And he then confesses his love for her in a way that is uh, absolutely committed and yet fully, uh, fully um, enabling of her independence. He says, from now on, that is to say, after you follow your star to uh, follow your calling to the worship of the God. From now on, I shall know that there is something wrong and false in this world into which we have been born. I am an ordinary man, but the love that filled me, for you, he means, is not an ordinary love. When such love is not met by a love in return, then love, that is to say life, is itself a deception. And it is best that men live at random as best they may. May you have a good journey, Princess Alcestis.
Now, this is very important. Uh, she has uh, recognized the reality of the unreality of human experience. She is uh, prepared to act on this vision that she has, which takes her out of the ordinary and the unreal and the um, tacky and the fruitless, and she is prepared to leave. This man, her love, gives her the keys to that city. He frees her to follow her deepest instincts and motives. And she now, I'm sure remembering the words from the herdsman and from Tiresias and the whole drift, including the words from her nursemaid and lady's maid, Aglaia, she remembers the coming together of a call with what in fact lies before her. And she says at this point, having been let go fully by the despairing but loving man, Admetus, Alcestis says, Admetus, Admetus, ask me again to marry you. The stage directions say he takes one quick step toward her. She again puts out her hand quickly to stop him. Ask me to love all the things that you love and to be the queen of your Thessaly. Ask me in pain to bear your children, to walk beside you at the great festivals, to comfort you when you are despairing, to make sure that when you return from a journey, the water for your bath will be hot and that your house, Admetus, will be as well ordered as your mind, to live for you as though every moment I were ready to die for you. Admetus says, joyously and loudly, No, no, Alcestis, it is I who... He takes her outstretched hand. They do not embrace. In other words, they don't have a, an obviously a dare happy ending. Uh, as the Germans say, it is not uh, a uh, clinch, a sentimental moment. No, no, Alcestis, he says, it is I who... And then he says to her, Alcestis, will you be the wife of Admetus, king of Thessaly? Alcestis replies, with my whole self, Admetus. That is the end of the first act. Now, in the following, the fourth and concluding podcast in this first series of plays that... Um, ponder uh, issues of such uh, importance and pertinence, at least to me and possibly to you. Um, for you, the living, this mash was meant to. Uh, what is the uh, message to take away today from the Alcestis Act One? The first message, and it is undeniable, that the spiritual or religious or searching impulse of human beings to find some kind of uh, bigger picture to explain the odd, bizarre enigma of our lives. And that's just not words. I'm not throwing out those words because there's some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, gloss or some concept or some uh, paradigm uh, uh, to sort of throw like a net over the odd uh, hands, all, all fingers and all hands, uh, hundred hands hairy 
uh, character of, uh, of, of life as we, as we deal with it. It's, it's simply a, an earnest and uh, resigned uh, fact, one that would, in a sense, uh, uh, offer the means to suicide. Uh, she sees it. She's very fortunate to see that the world is an unreal show, a farce, a kind of idiot theater that um, uh, we use expressions, we talk about, you know, the big players in a narcotics deal or the players in Washington, or he played his part, and you begin to see that the whole thing is a repeating drama. I'm not the first person who's ever said this, and Shakespeare said it in Macbeth, in the terms that everybody remembers. Um, the show, the painted images of of a life that seems so recidivistic and repetitive and uh, adding up ultimately to nothing. She sees it. She sees it. And uh, she wants to escape it. And yet uh, there is this other claim. It's the claim of, uh, of human love and uh, human giving. And uh, uh, what we're going to find in Act 2, which I will skip, but I'll refer to it, is a monumental act of sacrifice of one person for another. Uh, she's going to uh, look at uh, what lies before her, who is a good man. He's not a metaphysician, but he's a good, giving, strong, and yet not imperious or full of himself kind of guy. He's, a, he's about the best you're going to get out of a male. Obviously, he's normal. He's got a sex drive. He's um, capable of losing control. I'm sure he's capable of angry moments, but he's basically a fine. Uh, uh, he's in. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. You know, he's he's a man of goodwill, and she sees that she's got here a person of goodwill, and uh, Tiresias, the herdsman, and Aglaia have all tried to warn her not to write off what stands in front of her. And this is true in a lot of marriages, you know. You, you're always looking for some better way. You, you always uh, uh, look for what is usually called green pastures. You always think, oh my gosh, if this person could only not be such and such a way. And that person over there isn't. That person has so many qualities that the person I've been given doesn't have. And would that? And oh, couldn't I? And gosh, I'm, you know, you, you sort of lose heart with this man, you know, this impossible, unchanging uh, block of ice who just cannot be muzzled. You cannot control him. You can try as well as you can, but at a certain level, he just will not do. Um, and uh, yet, this is what's been given. It's not a counsel of despair. It's a counsel of faith. It's a counsel of faith that the uh, hand of Apollo, the word of Apollo, is the same word that presented this particular person, this child, this mother, this job in front of you. It's a wedding of opposites. And I'm not even sure it's entirely true. I'm not completely convinced that the answer to the human conundrum is not to chuck the whole thing and renounce it. And there's many wise people who have done that over the years and we admire them, and they've stuck to their guns, and they have an awful lot to offer. But that is not Wilder's message in the Alcestiad, Act 1. His message there is that what is before you is that which, to which you have been called by Apollo. And I leave that with you to think over and possibly uh, view your own uh, uh, star, your own um, 
farce uh, in the light of such a possibility. The fourth and concluding podcast in this series will expose the coming to a dire and lonely old age on the part of Queen Alcestis. Her thoughts of her past, her regret, her utterly awful present, and most importantly, the presence of Apollo in the life of an old, old person. I look forward to talking to you very soon. God bless.